Hello, and welcome to Fantagraphs Audio, episode 918. To begin this week's show, David Lorla is joined by Jesse Goldberg-Strassler, broadcaster for the Lansing Lugnuts and author of The Baseball Thesaurus. Jesse shares stories of how he has had to call live baseball games on the air that he couldn't see with his own eyes, as well as growing up a Tigers fan and meeting Ernie Harwell. The Lugnuts were a Blue Jays affiliate until recently, and Jesse also has a number of stories about some former prospects, such as Bo Bichette and Daniel Norris and Tim LaCastro. Jesse also tells David some of his favorite baseballisms, and then he clues us in on his own Noah Syndergaard theory. Did Noah have the great hair back at that time? No, he didn't. He had short blonde hair, very clean cut. And my wonder is, I have the educated shot in the dark, that when the nickname Thor came around, did the hair come afterward? That's my chicken or the egg question. Was it Thor or the hair, the hair or Thor that he really leaned into? Following that, Jason Martinez and Jay Jaffe have a discussion about Fernando Valenzuela. Jay recently wrote about the 40th anniversary of Fernando Mania and what his arrival meant to the Dodgers and to the game of baseball. Jay and Jason recall what it was like to be young fans at the time and how important his impact was beyond the diamond. And so really, you know, especially as a kid, you just you, you want to identify with, with something, whether it's your culture or, you know, your baseball yeah. team and things like that. And so to say, like, I, I love baseball. I know that's my thing. I love the Padres, but I don't really hate the Dodgers. I don't, I don't, I'm too young to hate, you know, to, to understand that kind of rivalry, you know. But I know this this Mexican guy, everybody's talking about him. And he doesn't look, you know, like this really great athlete. He looks like one of my uncles, you know, like the beer belly. And uh, <laughs> all of a sudden it's like, yeah, this guy represents me, you know. Finally, David returns to welcome Toronto Blue Jays general manager Ross Atkins to the show. They discuss Ross's recent extension, what it's like to work closely with Charlie Montoyo, and what the day-to-day life of a major league GM is like. Ross also shares some insight on Julian Merriweather, Vladimir Guerrero, and Alejandro Kirk, and David asks him about his thesis on baseball. Finally, Ross tells us just how excited he is for Nate Pearson. He's great. We're, we're exceptionally excited. We're going to have to temper our excitement and ensure that we don't move him too quickly. He's throwing the ball back to the velocities that he's always living at, and he feels great. All of his pitches are there. He's throwing bullpens. He'll be, he's already thrown a live BP, so he'll be in-game activity here at our alt site very soon. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. If you would like to help us keep doing all the cool things we do at Fangraphs.com, from the podcast to the daily articles to the stats database to the roster resources pages, etc., etc., consider an ad-free membership. For as low as $50 a year, you can be a Fangraphs member or even buy a membership for a friend. Thank you for all of your help. We sincerely appreciate it. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest on this segment is Jesse Goldberg-Strassler, radio voice of the Midwest League's Lessing Lugnuts, and it should be noted, the author of The Baseball Thesaurus. Jesse, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. David, thank you very much, and I believe that's now the high essential to you. Yeah, that is a very good point. Thanks to realignment, it is no longer the Midwest League. It's going to take me a while to get to get used to that. And I guess it should also be noted that the Lugnuts are no longer a Blue Jays affiliate, which they'd been since, I believe, like 2005. Thanks to realignment, they're now an Oakland A's affiliate. That 
presumably impacts you as a broadcaster. Hey, you were right on, 2005. It feels weird. If you had told me, hey, this offseason, you're going to get a high-A job and you'll join the Oakland Athletics organization, but you don't have to move very far from home. In fact, you can continue to sleep in your bed. I would say, okay, I'm intrigued. And that's what happened. Got to move up a level and joining an entirely new organization. So I've been spending my offseason trying to study up on all of these players. I've been cramming a little bit. Right. You, of course, knew the Blue Jays system. Uh, I guess you still do inside and out. Uh, you have been with the Lugnuts, I'm forgetting the year, 2010 maybe? 2009, yes. That is a long time. We will definitely talk about some of the players that you've gotten to know and that you've seen there. But let's start with the beginning of the minor league season, which is coming up soon. I am guessing that you will be calling home games on site, but initially away games remotely. Yes, they will allow us to be at our home stadium for home games. But from what I'm hearing for the first month of the season, uh, no broadcasters are allowed to travel. And then they're going to rethink things every month after that. So it sounds like I'm just going to be in the broadcast booth at Jackson Field every single day in the month of May. Right. And Lansing is, of course, in Michigan. Michigan is not doing nearly as well as they should be with COVID, which certainly is going to impact that. So we can only keep our fingers crossed that there will be fans in the stands and there will be actual games. Yeah, that feels like an understatement. Michigan is spiking right now. So hopefully everyone that I know, everyone I'm working with, all of our surrounding neighbors and communities and everybody is just trying to schedule their times. I'm scheduled as we record this to get my first inoculation, my first vaccine tomorrow. So yeah, just trying to get everybody ready and prepared as we approach the start of baseball. And it's going to be a very fluid situation, I feel. Yes. And, you know, fantastic with you know, with you getting your first shot. We are talking on Wednesday. So as people listen to this, Jesse will have his his first vaccine. Let's go to, you know, this early season experience. You will be doing games remotely, but unlike pretty much every other broadcaster in baseball right now, you have experience calling games that you literally could not see. <laughs> you should tell people about that. All right. So my very first job in baseball was with the 2005 Brockton Rocks and the Gold Clang Group. And if you're a Gold Clang Group team, you have fun. There are different crazy ideas that you can come up with, unusual promotions. And as a matter of fact, in order to get the job, I had to come up with a list of 10 promotions for the team to try to do. One of mine was you be the official scorer. And we had all of our fans official score a game. Well, the the vice president of the team said for one promotion, one day, assigned me and Matt Miola, co-broadcaster, he benched our number one, now the TV voice of the Texas Rangers, Dave Raymond. He benched him, and he said, we are going to recreate this game. This is going to be great. And Matt and I sat in the studio, and we passed notes back and forth to whomever was the broadcaster for that inning, and that person recreated that inning uh, in the old-school style. And then you fast-forward three years later, to my very first time as a number one broadcaster. 2005, I felt I was a disaster. Matt was great, but I really struggled with recreating a game. But in 2008, I was doing online-only broadcasts for the Windy City Thunderbolts in the Frontier League. And at that point, 
This enormous thunderstorm rolled through and knocked out all of the internet in the press box. There was no way to broadcast from the press box, from the broadcast booth. But we still had internet in the front office where you couldn't see the game. And I thought, I've done this before. I can do this again. And with my my assistant, Nick Kovac, messaging me what was going on in the game, I recreated the game while sitting in the front office, a couple of feet away from the box office and the retail store. And then when I got the Lugnuts job, I decided, why not make this an annual tradition? So every year, 2009 onward, recreating a game. And where that always helped, David, was every single time I had to do it. And it was so challenging and difficult and trying to figure it out as the messages came in. And I would misread one and suddenly I'd have to figure out how in the world I did a two-out sacrifice fly. But it made me feel the very next day like I understood what the listeners needed to see. Because if the listeners couldn't see the game, me trying to broadcast without seeing the game, I could now have a better idea of what needed to be brought to life. So now you fast forward to this year to be able to call a game where I'm not there seeing it. The experience of bringing the game to life where I'm not actually there. I feel like I I could teach a class in this now. And you have had broadcasters reach out to you this spring, I understand. Yeah, it began maybe a month or so ago. I had a broadcaster ask me for my sound, my audience murmur that I'd recorded. I'd recorded a crowd on a lazy Sunday afternoon, and then I looped that into a good 20-minute bed that I play under the recreation broadcast. And then throughout that game that I recorded, all of the crowd reactions, there was booing, there was cheering, there was very loud cheering, there was measured cheering, and I cut all of those little clips up. It was a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. crack of the bat, so I cut up a crack of the bat. Now when I do my game recreations, I would actually crack bats together and slam a ball into a mitt. But I have all of those sound bites, and I sent that to that initial broadcaster who'd reached out. And then very recently, two more reached out. And so I decided this might be something that more broadcasters than I realize will be looking for this kind of sound, and I've got the resource for them. So I put it out there if anybody wanted it. And I've had broadcasters at many different levels and outside of affiliated baseball, broadcaster looking to put together sound for commercials that they were recording. I've been, I guess, privileged that I'm able to send them all of my sound. And the reason this is, of course, important is other broadcasters and miners doing games remotely, they may not be synced up perfectly with a visiting ballpark. So the sound effects are necessary so people actually do get the ballpark experience as it happens. Is that correct? Just to have that crowd murmur below you. As there are broadcasters who are trying to figure out, can they send the sound, that ambient sound from ballpark to ballpark, and hopefully they are able to. But if they are unable to, and they're calling the game from silence, where it's just their voice, it provides such a welcome embrace to hear that murmur rise up below you. It makes you feel like you don't have to constantly talk. Because as a broadcaster, there does feel that urgency, that desperation to fill the sound with your voice when there's nothing else filling the sound. You can ask any broadcaster. The easiest game to call is the one where the crowd is loud. And you barely have to say a thing because the crowd is taking care of everything. You're not fighting against the crowd sound. You're working together as partners. So if you remove that and it's just you and then nothing, then you really need to have something 
below you. So that's what I've provided, whether it is that crack of the bat, whether it is that cheer to react, however somebody might be assisted by it, I can help. And you are right now, as you said, assisting some other broadcasters. You, uh, Jesse, have had kind words spoken to you by people like Jerry Haworth, Dan Schulman, and others. You are also uh, Baseball Digest Minor League Broadcaster of the Year fairly recently. I am maybe a little surprised that you are still in, in Lansing. Have you had opportunities to move up the ranks and do play-by-play in AA or AAA? I have not. What happens with regard to broadcast job openings, there's only a few each year. There might be only one or two at the major league level. There might be only one or two at the AAA level or one or two at the AA level. And those openings, they generally don't come open wide. When one does, it's a surprise because the employer, the hirer, does not want to get besieged, deluged by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of demos. So I would say that broadcast openings, by and large, with the rare minority exception, get filled before people know that there are openings that exist. But I have had the opportunities. I have applied to different openings here or there around the ladder during my time in Lansing. And you get edged out. I finished second or I finished third. And I found a really great perspective offered to me called the toothpaste test. That is that every broadcaster is basically like a brand of toothpaste. So when you go to the grocery store, logically, all of those toothpaste brands, all of those different boxes and their colors and everything that they offer, they could all stop you from getting cavities depending upon how you use them. And so the hirer and looking at all of those boxes, whatever box that they choose, that doesn't disparage any of the other boxes. It doesn't stop any of those other boxes from working for you. So for me, it's, it's been a combination of good luck and hard work to get where I am. And that generally is the formula for any broadcaster to get their position. And my feeling is as long as I continue to work hard, who knows what good luck is awaiting me. For sure, John Sadak, after many years in the minors, of course, just got his first opportunity, which is well-earned. Yes, it's not something where they look at the minor league broadcasters and they say, this is the best, promote them. This guy has worked this long, this woman has worked this long, promote them. There simply aren't those openings that come available. And with the Blue Jays going away from a radio broadcast and doing simulcasting, there are now fewer broadcasting opportunities in the big leagues. I don't know if you want to share your thoughts on on that decision that Rogers made. I think that is, it has long been, and I think back to the 1930s, it has long been an uphill climb for broadcasters to make ourselves known as valuable assets for a team. It was New York. It was the market of New York that resisted having a broadcaster before finally Red Barber was hired in from Cincinnati and showed, yes, it was a good thing for the Dodgers to have Barber calling their games. And you can look on at other teams throughout the decades that have said, if we have a broadcaster, won't that cost us money? Or what kind of money is that broadcaster bringing in? So I just see this as the latest step in that upward climb for broadcasters. And I feel that it's my job, in addition to all other broadcasters, to do our best to show our value. 
Yeah, maybe it's the huge money that rolls into to broadcasters that's that's stopping <laughs> Rogers. <laughs> Although the funny thing is, right, the highest end broadcasters command so much money. Think of the very top of the line, how much those broadcasters are paid. But you don't have to go too far to find the huge salary disparity. And you can find that same kind of salary disparity when it comes to, let's say, signing a young ball player. Right. That is, that is my point, that it is all relative, to, uh, you know, to the salaries, you know, but with ball players in mind, many former lug nuts are in the big leagues. Now, you having been there for better than a dozen years, who among them were the most fun or interesting to interview for your postgame shows? <laughs> Daniel Norris was a blast. Daniel Norris, as a matter of fact, did a, a pregame interview for me. He interviewed Eric Sakula, who was the closer of the team at the time. And one of the very first questions he asked was, you're the closer on the field. Are you the closer off the field? Like if I start eating a sandwich, would you finish it for me? (laughs) Daniel Norris was such a blast. He would come longboarding in each day and then hide the longboard in the box office. We would talk poetry and literature together. So yes, he stands out in my mind. Right. Daniel Norris was a guest on Fangraph's audio right around the holidays. I fear that maybe some listeners missed that because I, I think this may have run on, on Christmas Eve. But yes, Dan, Daniel is a joy for sure. Noah Syndergaard was really fascinating to have because you think about the popular players on the team, the, the players who talk a lot, and then there's Noah who is very shy. So his talent was evident. I never did interview Noah while he was a Lansing Lugnut, just because the moment never seemed right. It was very much what made him comfortable. And I respected him as a person. He respected me. We got along great. But I remember one of the very few interviews that I lined up for him while he was in Lansing was with you, David. And then when he hung up the phone after talking to you, he looked at me with big wide eyes. He gave a deep breath and he said, that guy asked some smart questions. <clears throat> wow. This has me wondering, what on earth did I ask Noah Syndergaard? <laughs> All I know is you made him think. That is a good thing. Did Noah have the great hair back at that time? No, he didn't. He had short blonde hair, very clean cut. And my wonder is, I have the educated shot in the dark, that when the nickname Thor came around, did the hair come afterward? That's my chicken or the egg question. Was it Thor or the hair, the hair or Thor that he really leaned into? Very good question. What was Bo Bichette like to deal with? Bo Bichette was everybody's younger brother. So he and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. were so much younger than everybody else on the team. And Bo loved video games, so you'd hear him talking video games with the guys. But one of my favorite Bo Bichette stories, because he had such great confidence, was early on in the season. He was upset that his batting average had slipped to down near 320 or 325 or something unseemly for him. And a pitcher on the team said, you realize that's a great batting average. Anybody would kill to have that average. And Bo looked this pitcher in the eye and he said, I bet you, and he named an amount of money, that I do not hit below that average the rest of the year. And the pitcher said, I'm not going to bet you that you're going to slump. And Bo said, okay. And of course he didn't. He hit above 390 when he was promoted up to high A. Wow. And Bo does pretty well in, in the hair as well. Yes. The flow that I've seen through the player in Lansing that I had the most fun interviewing solely about hair was Kevin Pillar, who discussed 
the proper way to use product, when to use, when not to use shampoo and conditioner. And you had to make sure that every now and then your cap flew off or whatever it was. And that way everybody could see your hair. The most memorable player with regard to hair that I saw in the Midwest League come through. There was the Tampa Bay prospect, Josh Soleil. And I've never, ever seen a player who did this. But every single time between pitches as he advanced up to home plate, he held his batting helmet in his hand. And the very last thing that he would do as he dug in was put his batting helmet on. It was fantastic. It was posing for everybody to look at him. And why not? If you've got it, flaunt it, right? (laughs) It takes individual sorts, doesn't it? But yes, Bo now has the flow. And you had Rowdy Telez as well. Rowdy, I do not recall having anything special for hair, but he does, uh, from my interactions with him, a good personality. Rowdy's bald now. Rowdy has shaved his head entirely. And I wish I could have talked to him. I started to go bald when I was 15 or 16. It runs in my family. And now I take a pill. I've taken a pill ever since then. And I've still got all my hair. So I wonder if that could have helped him. Rowdy, would I remember? So we had Rowdy in 2014 and 2015. And Rowdy Telez, every day I did a trivia quiz. And so top of the fourth inning, I would ask a question. Bottom of the fourth or later in the game, I would answer it. And if you emailed in first with the correct answer, you won yourself two tickets to the Lugnuts game of your choice. And I asked that question one day. And a fan, I did not know who they were, wrote in, answered the question. Congratulations to you, whoever you are. You're the winner. And after the game, Rowdy Telez confronted me and he said, hey, what's this I hear about you leaving two tickets for my girlfriend? Big mean mug. But he could only hold it so long before cracking up. I had no idea what was going on. I was backing away. But no, just messing with me because his girlfriend had answered the trivia question correctly that day. And do you remember what the trivia question was? Having a clue. (laughs) Tim LaCastro just set a major league record with 28 stolen bases without being caught to begin his career. He was a Lansing Lugnut. Would I be correct in assuming he's the fastest player who's played in Lansing? You know what? Maybe. He and Anthony Alford were on the same team. Jonathan Davis was on that team and a guy named Chris Carlson, who was great that year and then retired immediately after the year to go back home and become a police officer. They could run. But if you go back a couple of years in 2018, we had Reggie Pruitt, Samad Taylor, and Chavez Young, and I think two of them had 40-plus steals, and the last one had in the upper 30 steals. So the Lansing Lugnuts were regularly out-stealing the Oakland Athletics on a year-by-year basis that I've seen. What made Tim LeCastro fun, he had two inside-the-park home runs that year. His manager was Ken Huckabee, and he labeled him the magic man, and he said, watch, Things happen with LeCastro, just magic happens. And whether that's getting hit by a pitch, whether that's hitting the Bowling Green relief eights, Hunter Woods' unhittable breaking ball for a game-winning two-run shot, whether that was making a diving stop up the middle, Tim LeCastro was magic. There was a day where it was snowing in May, and Tim LeCastro and Anthony Alford were on the bases, and a line drive was hit to right field where Franmil Reyes made a staggering catch through the snowflakes. And there, LeCastro and Anthony Alford turned it into a two-run sack fly. They kept me on my toes. Loved watching the Magic Man. Yeah, he was not a Lansing Lugnut, but am I remembering correctly that you once told me that Fernando Perez is the fastest player that you've seen? Oh, so fast. Faster than Billy Hamilton? 
Yes. Wait, I just remembered something with Tim. Have I told you the Burger King story? You have not. Okay, so Tim Castro, and he and I are both Ithaca College Bombers. So was very proud when the Blue Jays drafted him. But this is in June. We're on the road in Lake County, and the only restaurant near where we were staying was a Burger King. So I walked into the Burger King for lunch, and there are a couple of lug nuts, including Castro, who had uh, a look on his face that was impossible to place. And he said, I've just been traded to the Dodgers. And everybody helped me piece together what had happened. He and Chase DeYoung, who had recently been promoted from us, had been traded. And Timmy did not really understand what it was for. Everyone was trying to read whatever they could. It turned out it was international slot money. And then the word came out that it was also the Blue Jays could sign Vladimir Guerrero Jr., that this was connected. Vladdy Jr. was signed on the same day that Timmy LaCastro had been traded to the Dodgers for international slot money. So everyone said, boy, this guy better be good considering who we're about to lose for him. So we wish Timmy well. All discovered in a Burger King. Now, Fernando Perez, I got to see him when I was with the Montgomery Biscuits as number two broadcaster for Jim Toko. So he was on a team with John Jaso and Evan Longoria, and we had some players. But Fernando Perez, I, I kid you not, he is the fastest player that I've ever seen rounding first base. Faster than Billy Hamilton, faster than LaCastro, faster than everybody. He could wheel. Wow. And you mentioned John Jaso, another player with, uh, with pretty good flow, usually in dreadlocks. Yes, but never in the minor leagues. So I never, ever saw these guys sporting this great hair in the minors. I saw Johnny Jaso, and he would always wear his backpack wherever he went. The one conversation that I remember having, because he was nice and quiet and friendly, was just talking about him coming from Northern California and what he had to do to get scouts to notice him. That was a constant with players, whether they were highly, highly regarded or whether they could not believe that somebody had found them wherever they had been. Guys loved exchanging their scouting stories. And we are starting to run short on time, Jesse, but I want to hit you with two more things. You are from Maryland, and you grew up listening to John Miller. Despite that fact, you grew up a Detroit Tigers fan and uh, once had an opportunity to meet the great Ernie Harwell. How did those two things come to be? I grew up a Detroit Tigers fan because I grew up a shortstop. And instead of, as a Marylander, choosing Cal Ripken Jr. as my idol, I chose Alan Trammell. And I loved Sweet Lou Whitaker. So every year for Hanukkah, my parents would get me tickets the next year to see the Tigers play the Orioles at Memorial Stadium. And I would just have to hope that it was Trammell playing in the game and not, let's say, a young Travis Fryman taking his spot. But when I got the job broadcasting for the Lansing Lugnuts... December 2008, hired from Las Vegas, and then I move up in 2009. My father, unbeknownst to me, wrote a personal letter to Ernie Harwell, and he said, my son is a broadcaster and a student of broadcasting and a longtime Detroit Tigers fan since as long as he can remember. I just wanted to proudly write to you about that. And Ernie Harwell wrote back to my father to say, thank you so much for writing. I understand. And he wrote to me and he said, Jesse, this is Ernie. When you're free, drop on by. Let's talk. And so I drove over to Ernie and Lulu in Novi, and they were wonderful. And Ernie and I exchanged stories. So, for example, I would ask him about Jackie Robinson, and then we would talk about recreating a game because 
he was surprised to know that I was keeping the tradition alive and what was going on and in terms of the minor leagues nowadays and how important it was to always say the score. What I loved most about getting together with Ernie was the way that he hid stories inside of stories. So the story upon how he first made his way up to the major leagues, right? The trade with the Atlanta Crackers for the catcher. And there he is going up to the major leagues and the very first day he gets rained out. And then the very second day, his first game that he gets a chance to call. And he describes it, the pitcher on the mound who would later have his nose bitten off in a barroom brawl. So he throws inside and I'm thinking, I'm sitting with Scheherazade because that's a story inside a story. And describing this brawl and describing these players, each of whom have their own stories that he's hiding within this anecdote that he's telling me. He was such a treasure. For sure. And that w- would be a perfect place to close. But I, I do want to ask you, though, about the baseball thesaurus, which you wrote. It is filled with, with goodies. What are your favorite baseballisms? That's a great question. And I think it changes based upon what I'm hearing from people, what I'm hearing when I go down to the clubhouse. For example, I loved when Drew Hutchison was the Lansing Lugnut and the pitching coach said, you've got to watch for the dead fish. He's got that great dead fish. And that was Drew Hutchison's changeup. So I would watch him toss in that dead fish that would die out of his hand and stink its way up to home plate. I loved sitting down with our groundskeeper and learning the parts of the mound. So the bump at the top and then the slope and the horseshoe going around and the path leading to home plate is the keyhole or the runway. All of those different terms that maybe I'd never even think of, but somebody gives it to me. And I'll finish with this. Listening to Pat Henkin downstairs in the coach's office come in and say, all right, so who's eating all the steaks? Who's eating all the steaks? And getting to understand that what he was talking about is who's knocking in all the runs on the team? Who are the big hitters? Because the leadoff hitter sets the table. The big hitters eat. They eat with RBIs, which are ribeyes, which are steaks. So I love just sitting back and listen to the way that the game is talked. Those are a couple of my favorites. That question was a can of corn for you, Jesse. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> that, that's my favorite term. And if people want to know where the term can of corn or any of these others came from, uh, you will find it in, in the baseball thesaurus. You just tossed me a cookie right down the middle. <laughs> oh, I can't top that, Jesse. <laughs> so we'll close. Once again, uh, I'm David Lorla, Jesse Goldberg Strassler. Thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. David, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Jason Martinez. I am the manager of the roster resource content at Fangraphs. I am in San Diego, California. I'm joined by Jay Jaffe, our resident historian at Fangraphs. He is in in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, we're here to discuss Fernando Mania. And, uh, you know, 40 years after the, you know, the guy's first full season, he's been all over the news this week. Everybody's writing about him. And of course, Jay, Jay being our guy here at Fangraphs, wrote a really good piece and of course, Jay and I, both being some of the older guys at Fangraphs, we were the, we were two of the ones that were actually alive and experiencing that that Fernando mania as it was happening. So, so Jay, t- tell me more about about what you were thinking at, back at that time, 1980, 1981. Okay, well, I was I started watching baseball uh, really kind of regularly in 1978. I 
you know, I think I was I was exposed to it before then. Uh, but 1978 is when things really kind of clicked for me. I started, I was able to read a box score. I, you know, I have very vivid memories of that year's World Series. And I grew up a, a Dodger fan. I was a third generation Dodger fan. My grandfather was actually born in Brooklyn, moved west before the Dodgers left Brooklyn. So never had that kind of that sense of grievance uh, that so many Brooklyn natives have about about the Dodgers leaving. So raised in the western half of the United States, I grew up in Salt Lake City. Uh, I didn't have a home team to root for. We went to minor league games, but you know we watched the Dodgers every chance we got, which wasn't that many. But they were, you know, they were they were in the playoffs. They were on the game of the week, uh, NBC and Monday Night Baseball and things like that. So I remember the 1980 pennant race, and the Dodgers brought up this uh, guy whose name I couldn't even really pronounce. It always got abbreviated in the box score as uh, uh, Valenzla, I think I first called him. Uh, but it was Fernando Valenzuela. And at the time, he was he was 19 years old and just this uh, chunky Mexico native who was befuddling hitters and put together 17 and two-thirds innings of without allowing an earned run coming out of the bullpen down the stretch in 1980 as the Dodgers scrambled to try to catch the Astros, which they did to force a playoff a one game playoff by sweeping the final three games of the season but they lost they lost that uh, that that play in game there's uh, a line of thinking that that Fernando Valenzuela possibly should have started that game instead of Dave Goltz uh, their free agent flop but uh, i remember following fernando by the box scores that year and seeing him pitch a couple times and you know in, in uh, late season games including that that tiebreaker game and he was intriguing and you know the hype kind of built about him over the winter Especially, you know, once the Dodgers let Don Sutton go via free agency, he signed with the Astros, kind of, you know, turncoat there. And so there was a there was a bit of hype building about Fernando Valenzuela. There was a thing about him in Sports Illustrated in, in the spring of 1981. He was in a couple of the baseball card sets. Uh, I was an avid baseball card collector. So I was kind of jazzed about him. But at the same time, you know, he's like any like any other Dodger. It's just like, whatever, you know, cool, Fernando Valenzuela. Um, and then he gets this opening day start because Jerry Royce is injured and throws a shutout and starts this amazing eight-start run where he throws nine innings every time. Uh, one of them's not a complete game, but five of them are shutouts, allows four runs along the way, 0.50 ERA. And at some point early on, I started cutting the box scores out of my local newspaper, the Salt Lake City Tribune. And keeping track, and I can't have can't have actually seen very many of these starts. Uh, maybe one or two of them were on TV, but I was following the the game stories, the box scores, the Sports Illustrated articles. Uh, he was on he was he was on the magazine cover on the May eighteenth, and you know just the hype was unbelievable. I mean, it was a phenomenon that you know I guess if you're an older fan, maybe it was reminiscent of of Mark Fidrich in nineteen seventy six. But Fidrich didn't dominate the way Fernando was doing right there. And, you know, suddenly it was like, wow, this is our guy. This is this is the guy who's going to help us beat the Yankees. And, you know, that's that's what it turned out to be. That's such a cool it's a, such a cool story. And it's 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 very similar to mine. Mine's a little bit different. And I'm, and I'm a few years younger than you. So I'm like five years old. In 1980, when I probably start hearing about Fernando. Same with you. I'm really getting into the box scores, and and my grandfather made me a um, he made me a scrapbook for the 1982 oh, wow. for the 1982 season. So I'm like six years old, and and I already love baseball. But that's when you know he starts cutting out the articles. 
he cut out like all the preseason stuff. And so that's when I'm like reading, you know, about players and, and then, then I'm reading the box scores and the standings and things like that. So that's, that's the one year where I go, okay, this is when I became a baseball fan, understanding how important it is, you know, this game is because the Atlanta Braves are 13 and 0 and they're ahead of us by three games. Right. So, so that's, you know, so being six years old and saying like, okay, that's, that's the point I understand. I really understand baseball and I'm a baseball fan, but, but the Fernando mania stuff, you know, just being somebody who was as a kid following baseball, you hear about the Fernando mania and I'm in San Diego, Padres are on all the time. And my, my grandfather always had the Padre game on and then the Dodger game would start 30 minutes later. So it was always, as soon as, as soon as, soon as the Padre game ended, you might catch a little bit of the post game, but then you'd hear Vince Scully and, you know, you put on, you put on the Dodgers game. And so, you know, and, and where I grew up in South San Diego and I'm Mexican, uh, my father's from Tijuana. And so most of my family, you know, on my dad's side is, is in Tijuana at the time. And so really, you know, especially as a kid, you just, you, you want to identify with, with something, whether it's your culture or, you know, your baseball yeah. team and things like that. And so to say, like, I, I love baseball. I know that's my thing. I love the Padres, but I don't really hate the Dodgers. I don't, I don't, I'm too young to hate, you know, to, to understand that kind of rivalry, you know. But I know this, this Mexican guy, everybody's talking about him. And he doesn't look, you know, like this really great athlete. He looks like one of my uncles, you know, like the beer belly. And uh, <laughs> all of a sudden it's like, yeah, this guy represents me, you know. And he's, and he's doing amazing things. Everybody's talking about him. And so, you know, being you know, in a part of, part of the country where most, you know, there's mostly Mexicans. I would say if you, you know, for where I, from where I grew up, if you combine like Mexican and Filipino, that's, that's probably a majority, uh -huh. but you know, it, it was interesting to see how, you know, my dad being an immigrant, not speaking great English and how, you know, just kind of seeing how he interacted with Americans who, you know, didn't quite understand him. And I kind of felt like, he talked down to him sometimes and I, and I, and I kind of, you know, so to have somebody like Valenzuela just be like, yeah, look, this, look at this, look at how successful this guy is at the sport that I love. And it just gives you so much pride, you know? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think I can only imagine how, how profound that must have been to have like a, you know, a positive, you know, just the positive depiction of, of, you know, of a, of a Mexican player succeeding in the major leagues. I mean, you know, I'm coming to this, you know, I'm a couple thousand miles away or at least a thousand miles away and I'm getting this, you know, sort of in a very different way because I'm not, not getting a lot of television on it. And, I'm Jewish. Sandy Koufax was our was our uh, uh, avatar, so to speak. Uh, but you know, the Sandy Koufax was well before my time. I, you know, he was he was retired, you know, three years before I was born. You know, so to have uh, Fernando Valenzuela to have the cultural experience of that, you know, for you, I can imagine that must have been just really pivotal uh, as a child, especially speaking, you know, as 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 you're saying of you know the the the, the immigrant experience and the way that. You know, Val the Valenzuela. He looked. He looked like an everyman. I mean, he's even at nineteen, he was kind of a chubby dude, and you know, there was all this joking that it was because you know he liked beer or whatever, but he wasn't <laughs> of legal age in the United States to to drink at that point. You know, and he barely spoke English, so he had this this kind of enigmatic quality to him. You know, as far as far as the media was concerned, everything had to be translated. It must have been a you know, it was a very 
different way of experiencing him in, in that regard for you than for me. But I, I think I, I'm, I, I don't want to say jealous because I, don't, I try not to be jealous of anybody. <laughs> but, you know, it's really cool that you got to experience it that way, you know, because I think that just, just the, an even deeper connection and, and all that for what it meant to you. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting how, you know, baseball's, you know, this billion dollar industry and we got, you know, the fan base, a lot of people a lot of people that go watch the games are not like hardcore fans. They just kind of like they, they like to see the greatest athletes in the world do do amazing things, right? And you go, "Look at this guy. Look how huge that guy is. Look how strong he is. Look at that guy throw 100 miles per hour. Look how far the home run was." But then then you think about guys like like Valenzuela and you think about you know somebody like Greg Maddox later on, and and I think think about some of the guys that that, that people love today, like like Alejandro Kirk from the, from the Blue Jays, who's also he's from Tijuana, um, but he mm-hmm. but he's a guy he's like this little chubby guy, and then Williams Astudillo from the Twins, and then of course Yermin Yer- Mercedes, who's putting up huge numbers with the White Sox, and you go, well, people love we love those guys because they just they don't they just look like us, man, and, right? And that's, that, yeah, and that's, that's so it's like of- a totally different reason. But it, it, it's the same thing. It's like we, wow, it's like amazing to see these guys and they don't look like the greatest athletes in the world, but they're still, they're still successful. And that's when we start thinking about like, well, yeah, it's not, it's, it, there's a lot more than just like the five tools. Like, you know, what is that sixth tool that made Fernando great, man? It's like, it, it, he's like that one example you think about, like the main example when you go, hey, s- somebody should tell that guy that it's not supposed to be this easy. <laughs> Right, <laughs> he's like right. He's like twenty yeah. years old, and you go, "That's not supposed to be this easy, dude." He had this. He had this pitching wisdom that was just so far beyond his years, and you know, you could sense that even you know, even as 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 a kid. That I mean, you know, and there were there were all kinds of questions about his age to the point that the. Uh, Los Angeles Times actually like published a copy of his birth certificate, and Al Campanis, the Dodgers general manager, kept it on file to, you know, to make sure, like, because he had probably had to prove his age everywhere. But yeah, he just—it was like he had, you know, he he had absorbed the wisdom of all these pitchers that he that he had been around, uh, you know, the, the the instructors that he'd that he'd had, you know, including uh, Tommy Lasorda himself, who was of course a pitcher. Uh, Ron Paranowski, the longtime pitching coach there, Bobby Castillo, the the uh, reliever who taught him the screwball. I mean, the screwball. He's throwing a freaking screwball. That sc- the screwball was outdated even then. <laughs> you know, it's it's a, the pitch of Carl Hubble. You know, from the 1930s. By 1980, it's already a you know a, a dying art in the way, you know the kind of the way we think of the knuckleball now. I mean, I went back, I went and I looked on Baseball Savant and. Those in the pitch tracking era, going back to 2008, there are just four pitchers who've thrown screwballs since 2008, and you know one of them it's just two pitches. Uh, only two did it with any regularity: Danny Herrera uh, and, and Hector Santiago. We just had a fifth person throw it: uh, Brett Honeywell Jr., uh, the Rays' uh, long delayed prospect, uh, threw one, and apparently he may have thrown more, but uh, you know they're still trying to figure out how to track him. But it's just, it's just totally. Uh, archaic pitch and for you know Valenzuela to you know have mastered it you know at such a young age it's like a superhero story and I guess you know when I think about it Fernando was a superhero I mean I was what 11 years old at the time I mean I was maybe you know I didn't didn't believe in superheroes or whatever but he was kind of that superhero to me you know for a while it just seemed that he could do anything and and you know he did the impossible but one thing that really stands out to me looking back on this is the pitch counts. 
You know, we right now we cringe every time a a a twenty one year old pitcher gets to one hundred and twenty pitches. And Fernando was, you know, was was twenty and was going past one hundred and thirty on a routine basis, and 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 yet somehow his arm held up. Yeah, and 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 way beyond his major league career as well, because the guy was pitching in the Mexican league like for years after after he retired. I mean, into his mid forties, late forties, maybe. Um, and he would pitch in the winter. I remember going to see him, you know, when I was a little kid. And, I, and you know, the, uh, Tijuana had a, a, a team called Los Potros. And I, I think I think Fernando played against that team in the winter or something. And I have a picture. You can't, it's all blurry. But I just remember my dad saying, there's Fernando. And, you know, whatever cheap camera I had back then. And <laughs> it's a bl- blurry <laughs> picture. But it's, it's um, but yeah, it's a guy who was just like, he could, he could just, he just loves it. He just loves the game. He's always his arm is just always, you know, just held up. It's just crazy to compare that with with how often guys get hurt these days and go like, what the heck? What the heck's the difference? Yeah, he's not trying to throw as hard, but still, man, that's 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 nuts. Yeah, you know, his looking looking at his numbers, I mean, he threw 192 and a third innings in that in two thirds of his season during the 1981 strike year. And then he has like Six more years in a row of like 250 innings plus. Doesn't miss a start. He's making 34 to 37 starts every year. He finally went on the disabled list in 1988. I think at that point he had something like 250 something consecutive starts. It was just this incredible, you know, like Cal Ripken like streak, you know, for for a pitcher given all the complete games he's throwing and and all of that. I've always grown up a Dodger fan. It always kind of saddened me that Fernando got hurt uh, in that that summer of 1988 and wasn't part of the of the World Series team. You know, they had they went they went out. They got John Tudor to fill in for him. Uh, that was the year, of course, that Earl Hershiser was so dominant. But but Fernando was you know kind of an afterthought. He didn't pitch well that year. You know, and and it was out after after late July. What's funny is the next it was the next spring that I got to see him in person for the only time. I was a freshman at college, and my parents decided that they would uh, uh, fly us all out. Uh, I would meet them in in Orlando, and we would go to Vero Beach. We go to four straight games at, at Vero Beach, four days in a row. And uh, I brought my camera, and one day I got Vin Scully's autograph. Just kind of bumped into him on my way back from the bathroom. Uh, and he waited while I while I fetched something fetched something to write on. It was su- super cool. Unfortunately, I lost that autograph, you know, before I was done with college. But I got to see Fernando, and and you know, he was. Uh, I got a pretty decent picture of him warming up uh, on the sidelines. At that point, he was wearing glasses, which was which was kind of a strange sight. It was it seemed like he'd maybe slimmed down a little bit too because he was rehabbing that arm, but. Uh, but I did get to see him pitch in his exhibition games, and uh, that was probably the, that was the only time I saw him in person. Yeah, if, and then he had at least one. There was one more pretty good year he had left, and that was as a Padre in his age yeah. age thirty five season. And I'm still like I remember, you know, he was there in ninety five, and I remember just being like, okay, this guy's at the end of the line. He's like bat. He battles for four or five innings, and then they get him out of there. But then when I look at his ninety six season, I go. Wow, I go. I don't remember him being that good. If you look at like, I mean, and '96 is the is their first playoff season since since '84, and so it's a, an important year. And if you look at the end of the season, he's going seven innings, eight innings, six, seven, eight, and I'm like, wow, he was 
And it's amazing that, like, I, I don't remember him being a big part of that team. But if you just look at how he ended the season, finished the season with 171 and two-thirds innings, you know, didn't strike out a lot of guys. But, you know, for, for him to, to do that with the Padres, that, you know, that was his last, his last good season. He even hit a couple homers, not, not in 96, the year before. I think he had two homers uh, with the Padres in 95, which is, oh, wow. which is so cool because he, he's known he for being hit. such a good hitter. Yeah, yeah, he he that guy could that guy could always take care of himself as as a hitter. He had uh he had one of those games in the Fernando Media the original run where uh he drives in the only run of the game. Uh wins a wins a one nothing shutout, which is, you know, which is super cool and of I think that's that's uh the fourth game, April 22nd against Sutton and uh that was a a huge deal and then uh a couple, you know, a couple other times in the I think in the playoffs he came up with he came up with a big hit here and there. Um, but yeah, he could he could always swing. He had a, he had three home runs in one year with the Dodgers, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, ten home runs in his career. There was a game he also played first base as a like a late <laughs> inning sub. I think it was eighty nine actually, and I think he also he also uh, played uh, uh, very briefly in the outfield, probably in another must have been another extra innings game. But uh, yeah, that ninety six race was was weird. Him and the Padres because that was you know the wild card was relatively new, and I remember my brother had just moved to New York City with me, and I think. It was that final weekend of the season. The Dodgers and Padres were tied yeah. heading into the last day. And so, you know, my brother brings a six-pack over. We're going to watch the game together. It's on. And then the Dodgers pull Ramon Martinez, their starting pitcher, after one inning. You know, because there's no penalty for being the wild card team. They're basically just kind of saying, well, whatever happens in this game happens. If they're the wild card team, they're the wild card team. And as it was, <laughs> the game ended up going 11 innings. Uh, nobody scored until the top of the eleventh when the when the Padres did. That was Chris Chris Gwynn. That was Chris Gwynn got oh, the hit in that game. I think Chris Gwynn. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it was a three, ah, three, three game sweep, and I remember Chris Chris Gwynn got the hit, a big hit, yeah. and he was an ex Dodger as well. Right. So right. You know, the other thing about Fernando is is it reminds me that there's there's like a different kind of athleticism because we're talking about his hitting and you know how he's a different kind of we don't he's not the guy we think of when we think of athlete. Think of athlete, you're thinking of those explosive runners and jumpers. But then you think of somebody, like especially baseball, there's so many guys who are just so slow. They run so slow, like, you know, catchers, first basemen. But they're such great athletes in every other aspect. And we're talking about hands and agility and everything else that makes makes them a great great player. But, you know, you can't, you can't run. He's one of the slowest guys there, but he can't mm-hmm. jump at all. You know, guys like like Adrian Gonzalez, who I, you know, who played for the Potters for a long time. And you go, oh, that guy's so slow, but he's an amazing athlete. He's the kind of guy that, you know, if he played football, he'd be a good quarterback. Or, you know, guys like that can score 25 points right. a game playing basketball. And it's just a different kind of athleticism. You don't need, you don't need to sprint and jump really high, you know, to play yeah, baseball. Yeah, well, you know. Thinking about it with the, with pitchers, I mean, like you know, a guy like Fernando, or you know, another one I think of, and another one also with some San Diego connection, David Wells. I got to oh, see yeah. a lot here in New York. I mean, you know, so much of pitching, especially the the pinpoint control, comes down to you know the ability to to repeat one's delivery. And David Wells, who looked like a guy who you know you'd scrape off a barroom floor, just had this easy delivery that he could he could go. You know, it seemed like you know several starts without walking about her. I mean, he just pounded that strike zone because you know, despite the fact that he looked like he was totally out of shape, he 
knew his mechanics and he just could repeat that delivery and baseball players in all shapes and sizes it's it's, yeah. it's a remarkable sport yeah and that's when you go like do do we really want these guys losing weight because it's like you know like you talk about cc sabathia and got guys like that it's almost like they're just nat- naturally that's they're just well balanced whether it's the balance or the you know how, whatever mecha- you know natural mechanics they have it allows them to do that at that at that weight, and so when you change your body tape that much, it seems like that could almost mess that part of your game up. Yeah, and you have to relearn it. So it's it's uh it's it's yeah, it's amazing. So do you remember much about the uh, the playoffs that year? Uh, getting back to Fernando, I don't think I I don't think so. I mean, I'm I'm 1981 playoffs. I'm I'm six years old, and so like I said, like the following year is when I really started following daily. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I think now, now, so, so here's a cool thing though. And I know I, I did some research on this and I know you did as well, because, you know, last year when, when we were shut down, I did a, I did a, I was doing these, how they were acquired pieces on a, like a former Cy Young award winner. So like I did all the eighties. And so for how Fernando was acquired is, is crazy because, you know, and how, how Brito, the scout, uh, Mike Brito finds him is, is through, through this guy, Bobby Castillo, you mentioned who was like a former minor league infielder. And then they're playing like, are they playing like a beer league or something? Yeah. And Castillo's pitching now. And, and, and it's crazy because if you go to a beer league, there's sometimes there's just like guys who were really good in high school or like they were drafted one year and then they got, you know, then they didn't make it past rookie ball. And there's just like these, you know, there's great athletes. They just happen to be playing in the beer league. And so, so Castillo, I don't know if is he, thro- is he throwing, I don't know for, for, for whatever reason he's, Brito like sees something in the guy, and then he signs him to be to be a pitcher. Does he get? Th- I don't know if he's throwing the, the knuckleball at that point. Am I? Am I? Uh, I'm, am trying, I I'm trying there? to remember exactly what the sequence. You know, it's funny. They on Saturday or Sunday, whichever game it was, when the Dodgers uh, the Dodgers honored Fernando, uh, he came up to the booth and talked to uh, Oral Hershiser and, and Joe Davis, and and he related, the, or they all told you know one version of the story, and I think. I want to. I want to. I want to say. I think it's something like Brito was playing in the league and he struck out against Castillo or something like that. Yeah. And it's like if if this whole sequence hadn't happened, you know, maybe Fernando eventually gets to the major leagues, but it wouldn't have been by that route. Yeah, and that that makes sense because because I remember I was I was looking for the, for the I was researching it and there was a few different versions of the story, but anyways, I, I guess the cool thing about it is that so so Castillo ends up on on the Dodgers. And and he's on the team when when Valenzuela debuts, and I think he pitches in the same game with with Val. I think it's Valenzuela's second appearance. I think he is on that. He pitches in the same game, you know. And Brito's a scout with the Dodgers as well. Uh-huh. And then is Castillo was Castillo on the eight? Yeah, and Castillo was on the eighty-one team. So you know, this kid takes him to the World Series, use you know with on yeah. that pitch that he taught him, and he's on the same. He's on that roster with him. Yeah. I mean that that postseason, I you know living and dying because the Dodgers had their backs to the wall so many times. They're down o two to Houston in a best of five, and they're down two to one against the Expos, and they make the ninth inning come back the Blue Monday home run, and then they're down two games to none against the Yankees, and Fernando throws that hundred and forty seven pitch, just the gnarliest complete game, <laughs> like seven walks and like. You know, has like you know put ten men on in the first four innings or something ridiculous like that, and it's just this, you know, he's on the ropes the entire, you know, first half of the game, and but he just keeps getting out of it, and 
you know, if the Dodgers lose that game, they're down three nothing. But but he is just so staunch. They just can't, you know, that he he won't give up that that last run, and the Dodgers, you know, do hold on and, and win, and it turns the series. You know, and after that, it was like you knew that you knew that they were going to come back and win it all. Uh, and that did. And, that's the kind of stuff that. You know, when you're a little kid like like you are, that's the stuff that makes you a fan for life. Yeah, it's the, thing, it's the thing that makes you want to work in baseball, and then end up talking about talking about it on Fangraphs audio, like you know, 40, <laughs> 40 years later. Man. Forty years later, yeah, it's amazing <laughs> to have like that long a recollection and still have it be that. I guess on the one hand, it makes me feel old. On the other hand, I'm I'm glad that I am still able to remember it, and like you said, able to talk about it professionally uh, on Fangraphs audio. Yeah, man, I, and and I think once you're like when you once you're in your sixties and seventies, Jay, and you got that gray hair, like you're you're gonna be that guy. There's there's the guy, the guy who knows everything about you know he's the, he's the historian that everybody goes to. You're just not you're not old as old as the other guys right now who've been who've been around since like the fifties. You know what I mean? And like they remember yeah. all that stuff, but you're gonna you're gonna be that guy at, at some point, which is which that has to be. That has to be a cool feeling, you know, like to be like, I'm the guy that's going to remember all this stuff and I'm going to be relating these stories to everybody. I, ho- I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> all right. Well, this, is, this has been fun, Jay. It's been great talking with you, talking, talking Fernando Mania. I uh, hope to do it again another time. All right. Thanks a lot, Jason. Hey, baseball fans. Welcome back to the next segment. Uh, Once again, I am David Lorela. My guest is Ross Atkins, Toronto Blue Jays general manager. Ross, thanks for coming on to Fangrass Audio. No problem, David. Thank you for having me on. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, we haven't seen each other for a few years, but in this crazy pandemic world, I guess that's maybe not, not much of a surprise. I'm surprised we haven't been on a Zoom call together, but it is a, it is an interesting existence that we have seemingly with some light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, fingers crossed. And yeah, we are all living in Zoom these days. I should start, Ross, actually by congratulating you on signing a five-year contract extension, which you did last week. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's you know what? It's, it's nice to reflect on the people... Uh, that I've learned from and grown from and have heard from recently with congratulatory remarks and really exciting for me to think about how fortunate I have been and I am to be working with the people that I'm with from Charlie Montoyo and Joe Sheehan and Tony LaCava and Mike Morove across, I mean, there's so many different people that I could list on and on and some that that aren't here with Toronto anymore that has been nice over the course of the last few days just to connect with people because of that public announcement. But, um, you know, very feel very much feel like just one small piece of the equation here, just trying to help us improve on a daily basis and feel, like I said, very fortunate. But thank you, David. No, you're welcome. And you just mentioned several of the, or a few of the notable front office people. When I I interviewed you two years ago, this was for for print, we talked a lot about process and infrastructure. Today, I want to talk more about players. But before we do that, let's touch on the life of a big league GM. What does your typical day look like? It always depends on the time of the year. Uh, This time of the year, everything revolves around trying to win any given day, any given night, and what's the best roster configuration 
that we have and how do we put you know all of our staff and all of our players in positions to be successful so you know there are typically baseball operations interactions happening very early in the morning where we're thinking about tonight's game and this series and then what's ahead of us and what decisions need to be made then there are discussions with major league staff and personnel to uh, make sure that we're being we're asking questions and not just uh, uh, answering them and not just you know moving forward too quickly. But that will shift here very soon where a lot of our attention amongst baseball operations will be entirely focused on the draft. We've already started some meetings that will start to get to know the amateur players in a better way from uh, the top of our baseball operations department all the way through amateur scouts. And that will be extremely invigorating, as it always is. And then, obviously, we're always thinking about development and deployment. So how we're uh, helping players get better and how we're putting them in positions to be successful throughout the minor leagues as well. So depends on the day, depends on the week. But there's usually a, a transition from discussion with baseball operations staff and uh, front office employees to the in-uniform staff, and then ultimately to the player. Whether that's to a major league player, a minor league player, or talking about an amateur scout, uh, always trying to think about how we can make the best decisions and put people in positions to be successful. So I'm sure that you talk to Charlie Montoyo most every day, at least once. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's interesting in today's world, we're with each other around the clock because we are in a bubble. And once you go in it, you pretty much stay in it. So, you know, one of us and I'm, I'm traveling with the team and uh, we're, we're together a lot. I think the, the COVID existence in Major League Baseball has, diff, has been different for everyone for many reasons, some of them obvious, but one of maybe the less obvious ones is just how much tighter our groups are and our circles are. So therefore the interactions are different and they're much more in person. So, you know, Charlie and I are spending hours together on a daily basis instead of minutes. And that has been a huge upside to this time and a, and a, a benefit that I think I've, I've certainly enjoyed and benefited from. Right. And Charlie is, of course, part of the decision making process in, in your organization. How are early season call ups determined, Ross? For instance, Anthony Castro just came up from the alternate site when Julian Merriweather went on the IL. It, it's interesting. I mean, similar to what I was describing before is that we are wanting to ensure that we're thinking about it from every angle, um, not just from the angle of what matters the most tonight or tomorrow, but what are the long-term implications? What are the implications on the other individuals? And so usually it's a group of, um, you know, we actually have a, a several text chains, WhatsApp chains, Slack chains, where we're communicating constantly on what we might be discussing post-game. And then several members of that group from baseball operations who are in the bubble and on tier two will come down and discuss that with, with Charlie Montoyo, with Pete Walker, with Matt Bushman, with John Schneider, with Gil Kim, with Guillermo Martinez and Dave Hudgens. And it's interesting that one we probably spent an hour on talking about that with a group of 
anywhere from four to 10 people, depending on where we were in the hour. And we had three injuries that night with Ross Stripling, Jordan Romano, and Julian Merriweather you know, the night before, prior, sorry. So when we, we made that decision, there was, a lot of, <laughs> there was a lot of moving pieces and parts and a lot of things that were factoring in and some fatigue to, you know, a long day and a long night and, you know, fortunately a game that we had won. But that particular decision ended up being, had started with a series of text communication that turned into back and forth dialogue. And we don't oftentimes have really, really close calls and have to break ties. But in that case, it was a, we had a couple of options and it was a a very difficult choice for us, but we were so excited about Anthony Castro's performance in spring training and at the alt site, uh, the, the velocity that he had shown, the poise that he had shown that uh, we thought the chance for a strikeout was there in a big situation. And we were <laughs> pleasantly, well, we were pleased to see how well he performed in his first start with the, or his first outing with the Blue Jays. Right, and I believe that was his second big league outing in in total. You picked up Castro on waivers from the Tigers, I think, in December. How does that process work? I assume you have somebody responsible, maybe it's yourself, for watching the the waiver wire? Yeah, we, we have a team that is watching it with one individual accountable for it, and that person is shifting Um, we don't always want, we don't one person doing that for three years in a row, but a lot of people with different inputs into one person that's consolidating the information on whether or not it's something that we should spend, you know, more than 30 minutes to an hour on and really dig in to the claim being worthwhile or not. And in that case, it was, that one was a pretty clear decision based on what we had learned about them. And we're fortunate enough to he, that he got to us. So, yeah, incredible person, too. Uh, just an, an incredible teammate, a very, very interesting individual, very smart, selfless, uh, very good family man. So we had learned a, a lot of great things about him. And obviously, the objective information was positive enough that we were excited and That group that monitors the waiver wire brings players to the forefront that uh, to, you know, Joe, Mike and myself, Andrew Tennish and a couple of others. And then we work through it and decide whether or not it's worth a claim or not. And Merriweather, of course, uh, you know, the oblique injury had was pretty disappointing as he had been throwing well. What is your history with Julian Merriweather? Well, I was in Cleveland when we when we drafted him and I was there early on in his development days, but uh, then I left obviously in 15 and was gone in 16 and 17. So didn't see that part of his progression, but then he ultimately ended up having Tommy John and uh, we were excited about the intangibles to start. So he, we felt as though he had enough athleticism to repeat what we viewed was a very effective delivery we were excited about the fastball life and velocity and then the makings of two other major league average pitches and his rehab process ended up him coming back a little bit different pitcher, a little bit more power to the arsenal. And the, it was such an extended process and had hiccups in his return, even at the major league level. So 
we focused on the relief strategy or reliever strategy and that seemed to be going exceptionally well and then he had another hiccup so it's, it's an oblique strain that we know he will get past and he'll be back in the fold here soon and you have a player development background but you also pitched in college and and in the minor leagues are you pretty tuned into pitching both with development and acquisitions i am i i think i'm probably more comfortable talking about it from a identification and problem solving standpoint and and i would say i'm probably more passionate about pitching but I've learned so much about hitting over the years, and I love talking to really good hitting evaluators, really good hitting coaches, and really good hitters. They're so different. I think there's a book to be written about the difference in pitchers and hitters within a sport because the mindset is so entirely different. And, and I've always felt that pitching's a lot easier to evaluate because you always know what the pitcher's trying to do based on what you see the catchers set up and request being. And the thing about hitting that you never know is what he is trying to do. Well, sometimes you can see based on the outcome, but if the result's not there, it's not always easy to see you know, what the hitter was trying to do, what he was thinking approach-wise, what he was thinking from a timing standpoint. And you know the athletic pieces of it are similar in that the way that they load and how they effectively create consistency to whether it be arm stroke or bat path is relatively similar but you know breaking down the mindset and the reactive ability of hitting versus the proactive ability of pitching is is fascinating to me uh, but i i would say that i'm probably more confident talking about pitching but i've become as uh, excited and my passion is extremely high for just continuing to learn more and more about hitters. Yeah, you mentioned Ross a few minutes ago uh, preparing for the draft. Uh, your club, of course, did not draft uh, Simeon Wood Woods Richardson, one of your top pitching prospects, but you know you acquired him in a trade. I looked this up, and the Mets actually drafted uh, Simeon uh, maybe four picks before you would have had that opportunity. Was he on your radar in the second round in 2018, I believe it is? He was. That was a part of our acquisition at, at the in the trade. We were excited about him as an amateur. And that's the thing with, with decision-making in baseball, at least in my opinion, is, is when you have a group of people that can paint a picture and there are less unknowns they that typically ends up being higher in terms of value and how you're placing a value on that individual so we had a very good picture painted on simeon woods richardson we felt as though we knew him as an amateur felt as though we knew him as a professional player and were exceptionally excited about his potential so so the short answer though is yes that we were we were excited about him as an amateur, and he was in our mix in and around that area. No, for, for sure. I know it wouldn't be fair to say if you would have taken him, you know, in, if he was there with Griffin Conine. But you, di you did acquire him, of course. What 
Was that a very drawn out process? Were there months involved in that in the Marcus Stroman trade, or did it come together? <laughs> or did it come together pretty quickly? No, there there was you know to say months would probably be a bit of a stretch, but weeks for sure. Um, and and I and it felt it feels more like a month of of preparation that goes into it and. But if you start to factor in the work that was done in the draft, then sure, there are months that go into it. So we spend a lot of time prior to the deadline thinking about other farm systems and our own and the best potential outcomes and where they, we try to project where those are going to be, to be as prepared as possible for ideal. Uh, but it's so hard to do that it takes an a an incredible amount of work from our professional scouting staff and from our operations staff throughout R&D, all of our analytical team. We bring in people from the development side, obviously from the amateur world as well, to again, paint that picture, not only of what they've done, but what they could do, what potential adjustments could be made or might need to be made uh, for maximizing opportunities with players. So feel very good about the leadership of Joe Sheehan and Ryan Middleman and Mike Morove, David Haynes, who was here is now with Anaheim, that they, they've, they've done such a good job to make sure we're learning from our professional scouts and consolidating and synthesizing an incredible amount of information to know that when we have to make a decision, when there is something in front of us and projecting on if it's going to be uh, the best possible outcome that we can have, being able to say yes or no. And I, that is an area that I am exceptionally confident in amongst baseball operations because of how strong that process is. Yeah, switching, Ross, over to the international side. I believe you were still in Cleveland when uh, the Blue Jays signed Vladimir Guerrero Jr. What was your level of, of knowledge about him? We, we loved Vladdy and loved the bat and didn't have that level of financial power when at that time, at that juncture. Um, that, that wasn't ownership-driven. It was based on... Um, you know, how we had our strategy that year. So he had just outpriced where we were at the time, but he, amongst all of our scouts, was one of the better hitters that we had seen. So wasn't surprised by, you know, where he landed and what uh, the, the dollar figure and how much he received in that signing bonus at all. So, but yeah, we, we loved the player. Yeah. What did his, uh, his earliest scouting reports look like? I, you know, off the top of my head, I just remember everyone talking about the bat speed, the bat to ball, and the plate discipline. That was the thing that it was just he, the consistent hard contact, the, the lack of swing and miss, and the exceptional rate of driving the ball <laughs> in a very strong way. No, Vladimir Guerrero is, of course, I guess would be fairly obvious to most scouts, the, the upside he had. What about when you signed Alejandro Kirk in 2016? What did his early scouting reports look like? It's such a such a cool story of scouting, of just perseverance and hard work. And Andrew Tennish and Sandy Rosario with Dean DeSillis, 
Um, I think Dean went on that trip alone initially to see a couple of players in Mexico and ended up identifying Alejandro Kirk independent of our our strategy or or what you know he was a player that we hadn't been targeting. It was a player that Dean DeSillis uncovered and found for us. And uh, I remember Andrew Tennis telling me the story via. Dean DeSillis, how excited he was about the bat to ball ability, how excited he was about his mobility, about his range of motion, and really just the, the heartbeat and the competitiveness of the player. Okay, and there are probably dozens of players I'd like to ask you about, but, but we are running out of time. I should ask you, though, what Nate Pearson's status is right now. He's great. We're, we're exceptionally excited. We're going to have to temper our excitement and ensure that we don't move him too quickly. He's throwing the ball back to the velocities that he's always living at, and he feels great. All of his pitches are there. He's throwing bullpens. He'll be, he's already thrown a live BP, so he'll be in-game activity here at our all-site very soon. No, that's that's great news. To close, Ross, I want to go back to your uh, relatively short playing career. I believe that I read once that when you were drafted by the Indians out of Wake Forest, I don't recall the round, it was 30-something. But what I recall reading is that you got a call from your scout telling you to report, and you asked him if you could finish your thesis first. Is, is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, that's accurate. What was the thesis? Well, I, I actually... I actually ended up doing it on baseball and comparing baseball markets to financial markets for an economics class that I was taking. But at the time, I hadn't determined that's what it was going to be because I couldn't, I couldn't finish it because I, had to go, I decided to go play baseball. So it, it was Casey McKeon was the scout, and I was, quite frankly, surprised to be drafted and pleasantly. And I just said, hey, I'm, I'm enrolled in, in one last class to graduate. And it was, uh, you know, part of it was writing a thesis. Can I finish that before I report? <laughs> Basically said, well, I bet will probably impact your ability to be a Cleveland Indian. So I quickly decided to uh, come up with an alternate plan. And fortunately, the leadership of Wake Forest was incredible about working with me on being able to do it at a distance. And this was before virtual learning was a thing. And I think, you know, we were still operating on uh, flip phones at that point. So it was uh, all via uh, word processor, uh, not even via email. Right. So the, the thesis did eventually get done? Yes, absolutely. And did you get an A on it, Ross? I don't know, David. I think I did fine. I'd have to go back and see what the grade was. But I graduated, and I'm exceptionally grateful for my time at Wake Forest. Right. I think that's a great place to close. Once again, um, I'm David Lorla. That was Ross Atkins, who I'm certain got an A on his thesis. Uh, <laughs> Ross, thanks for, for coming on. Thanks for having me, David. Have a great day. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoyed the program. If you would like to help us out and money is tight, which we certainly understand, maybe simply spread the word. Tell a friend to listen to Fangraphs Audio. Have you checked out our Twitch page? Over at twitch.tv slash fangraphslive, you can check out all of our former broadcasts. And every Wednesday night at 4.30 Pacific, Jason Martinez is doing the Roster Resource Show on the Twitch page and on the Fangraphs homepage. 
We will be back next week with another podcast episode. Have a good weekend.